David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram at shopburb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to today's edition of Light Culture. My name is David Hershkovitz, and I'm here with my guest today, Carlo McCormick. Carlo uh, presents a unique opportunity for me to talk to somebody I've known for quite a long time now. We've worked together, we've played together, we've raised our families together. We actually know each other quite well, which may sound like a good thing, but on the other hand, I feel like we might overlook a lot of more obvious things that people may want to know about because we've already talked about them over time. But I feel like we could still find a lot of good, rich soil to dig into. What do you think, Carlo? I think so. Hello, everyone. And uh, Carlo has a lot of expertise. He wears several hats at different times, not at the same time. And um, among them is art, uh, psychedelics, so I thought we would just start with that, and then we'll get on to music and sure. other subjects. Uh, well, I'm an art critic mainly, so but uh, I kind of look at the world through the lens, through a highly aesthetic lens of the culture of art being produced. And uh, oh, right. obviously I would want to uh, consider the psychedelic experience as part of the world, and so I've looked a lot of at that art as well but sorry you wanted to say something yeah i just want to you know i neglected to totally say what you are and who what you do besides being my friend even though that is the most important component of everything but carlo is a noted art critic he is a writer he has on first name basis with many of the major artists and musicians today and has been intimately involved in the evolution of the arts in, in New York, certainly, since uh, the 80s. So that is what we're going to be talking about. No, that sounds good. <laughs> He's That'll... written many books. Many and, books, yeah. and, and look him up, Carlo McCormick, online, because he doesn't do social media. So you won't find him on Instagram and you won't find him on Twitter. Yeah. And, and that is an, an interesting thing because, I mean, one of the first books I that that I wrote was Alex Gray's book uh, The Sacred Mirrors uh, which is you know one of the kind of seminal books of uh, psychedelic art because of that and then because of uh, like I did a column uh, for High Times for I don't know a number of years called High Art which was this art to look at while you're high I did notice that uh, so much of uh, these communities um are people who are feeling some uh, spiritual kind of uh, bankruptcy in their life. And so they're kind of seekers. And um, I always had to resist that. So uh, I've had to step away from it many times because there's this kind of guru thing sets in where people really want your wisdom and da-da-da, and they want some sort of enlightenment or healing. And uh, I feel the same way about social media. Uh, Don't follow me because I'm lost. And... 
So just to round it around to that. Alex Gray has a very huge he has, social he has media a huge, Yeah, and, and he, Allison, his And wife. Allison, both of them, and they have, like, uh, real followers. And I've always liked art, which generally tended to attract fans more than connoisseurs, but the followers part is difficult, and Alex is very nimble about that, about deflecting uh, the sense that people really sometimes is, well, they're not going to believe in the standard religion, so they're going to look for some other, you know, version of it, and and drugs can occupy that thing. What, I, what I've noticed in all of this is that there seems to be a few things that are hardwired into the human condition. Um, one is mark-making, and this goes back to the petroglyphs and the cave paintings through graffiti, through basically most forms of visual art as a form of mark-making, but it's really in our psyche. It's sort of the money shot from the moon landing was the footprint on the moon, as it was the tire prints of Nar uh, Mars Curiosity rover. People just really liked this kind of, I was here. You know, we, ne we need this evidence. And if, the, if that's one, another one, of course, is magical thinking, um, which is the root of all of our religions, basically. Um, this idea that we uh, are—we not only don't have an explanation, but we're kind of awed by this vaster thing around us. So we try to come up with a bunch of answers for it, and um, and then the the third, uh, and I think they all kind of dovetail into each other nicely, is intoxication. That the human species, like many animal species, if there's an opportunity to get high in one way, the maybe it's a bird finding out that these little bit of overripe berries will make them fly funny. I have no idea, but most animals do seek out some form of intoxication, and it seems to be hardwired into us. So we, uh, we're, de we're a little bit determined by all of them. So I've always kind of thought, well, as an atheist, I'll forgive your medieval thinking with your religions if you uh, allow me to get high and allow kids to make graffiti or whatever. Let's just understand that these things are, are part of who we are. Well, you said um, art to look at when you're high. Is, well, does that that, um, that was you know that uh, that was being a little glib on that, but um, it was a monthly column and it was mostly visual. It you know it would be a bunch of really cool looking things for potheads uh, at that time in the eighties. What when, like for example? Oh uh, well, it could be an Alex Gray, but it, it was just tons. But many, many artists, many contemporary artists, because a lot of them had some form of intoxication as part of their creative process. But the other flip side of it was is that at that time, uh, at the height of our kind of uh, drug wars and um, our phobia for this stuff where um, to be a uh, – to be – open about drug use you you might as well join nambla you you were close you know you were so such a social pariah and then you had all this readership which was very young and most of them were like they didn't fit you know with school systems they didn't fit in with many groups and so something like high times offered a vision of an alternative culture based off of something they like to do which was smoke pot and and the magazine, at least editorially, in those years, with uh, with Holmstrom, with Steve Hager, with um, you know, with many of those with people, uh, Steve Bloom, who I know you've spoken to, it was sort of like about expanding the culture, but the understanding that they need to deliver something which you know, within a joking part of the industry, we could call pot porn, 
which would be these incredible photos of incredible buds where you could like see every little crystal and tricorn and all that stuff like that. And so how do you create a visual component with that with art? And then using that as a gateway to people who probably have no idea about art or care about art to try to, you know, bring them into this visual culture, this conversation of visual culture. So what percentage of the of this art would you guess was made by people while they were high? I don't, and you how know, important is that to psychedelic art? I think, you know, most artists find that probably, you know, being really high <clears throat> doesn't always uh, create the aptitude that they need to convey their visions. So I think that there's a slight separation there. Um, I've seen some pretty bad art made by people who are really high, to, <laughs> no to be honest. Uh, um, but it's more like a learning tool and a navigating tool and a way of kind of cracking open your consciousness, as many things can do, is maybe, you know, whatever, learning how to surf or skateboard could even. You know, um, there's certain things that uh, fundamentally uh, readjust the way you navigate the world, and, uh, and, and that's one of them. But looking at Alex Gray's <clears throat> work specifically... That seems to be very much about yeah. the psychedelic. I mean, that's why that's why I mention him because he's sort of a paradigm of that. Most people, you know, just because you're an artist and you smoke pot doesn't mean you're going to make pictures of pot leaves. I mean, please, uh, that's kitsch. So um, it, it is, you know, very much about how people process the world and uh, digest their food. You know, and, and it, it's not just these more recently recognized cultural phenomenon. Um, it kind of goes through the arts. So if you look at cave paintings, uh, you actually find some with mushrooms in them that are clearly psychedelic mushrooms. You see a lot of distortions, and this is like these um, scientists in Japan, uh, like neuroscientists and, you know, things like that who really study perception as well, is that there's certain... Um, there's certain tropes, like kind of like uh, web forms, things like that, that are appearing in cave art. So that maybe if all these things are kind of fundamentally linked to a consciousness, that maybe that was one of the things that got us up the next evolutionary rung of the ladder in terms of thinking uh, or, or perception. And um, so, it, it, but then there's just a lovely alternative art history out there. With the Greeks, you have, uh, and the Romans, you know, really the... The Bacchus and how many, you know, Rembrandt, whatever, so many uh, people have, have addressed that figure uh, that it's sort of like, oh, I wonder why that god was so popular with painting because they're not really, they're not really kind of demigod at that, right? So um, there's probably more Bacchanalian images than there are of Zeus uh, at this point. Then weird things like uh, the. Dutch genre of tavern paintings, uh, which which and then trickles into all sorts of things. But uh, you you know certainly Bruegel and Rembrandt even did them. You know ever you know these kind of like tavern scenes and this kind of drunkenness follows directly from that. And then you have another uh, kind of interesting moment when absinthe becomes a muse for so many artists: uh, Lautrec, Manet, um, Degas. Um, Van Gogh, they all did, uh, Picasso, they all did their absinthe paintings. Uh, and then, you know, it, it goes on from there. So for me, one of, you know, my first uh, engagements as an art critic was with uh, that kind of 60s generation of psychedelic artists. So um, that would extend uh, from the people you would know through popular culture as artists. So say 
the uh, people who did the Fillmore posters and the art for all those, you know, bands out of the 60s. So that's like Rick Griffin, you know, who's also very important in surf culture. Wes Wilson, Stanley Mouse, Alton Kelly. I mean, there's a, there's a canon of really uh, great, really amazing uh, psychedelic poster art, which, which stands in the history of poster art as a really important movement up there with Alphonse Mucha or anything like that. And then, of course, there's people like Maddie Clarwine, who no one knows his name, but most people would probably have seen Santana's Abraxas or Miles Davis' Bitches Brew, you know, and seen his covers that way. So th- there's this whole thing which really got ignored by the art world. As the art world, which I work in, is, <laughs> is a lovely place for just how far it's got its head up his ass. It's like I love its myopia, uh, that it's a weird echo chamber of people t- you know they kind of miss on a lot of things but I, I love them for that so uh, personally if you may how did you get interested in psychedelics and what how did that connect into art did art come first and then psychedelics or was it psychedelics and then art or was it i guess i always contemporaneous? i always cared about art from a really early age part of the weirdness of, of my youth but um so i'm born in 1961 which makes me sentient and aware like really uh, of everything going on in the 60s, especially 67 on, right, where the real psychedelic explosion hits mainstream recognition. But then by the time I'm old enough to go to the party, it's a bunch of losers passed out in pizza boxes or something. So, but you grow up, even if it's a really diluted thing, like a Peter Max version of it or or watching Yellow Submarine or any of these things, which were very kid-friendly, um, uh, you grow up attuned to this kind of maximalist uh, expression, uh, this liquid expression, uh, the, these these kind of uh, fr- uh, frangible uh, aspects of of what psychedelic art is. And then when I took psychedelics later, uh, it was a life changing experience and has continued to be. It's something I I still do. Uh, it it helps me a lot in life. It's you know incredible tool for. Especially for somebody you know who wants to uh, experience things yet still through an analytical mind, I find that I'm able to do to do that with psychedelics. It's cheaper than a shrink or uh, less complicated than a spiritual path. So it's a convenience thing for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think tripping is necessarily a convenient thing, and I certainly don't do it now in the ways I used to do as a kid, where it's like, oh. That band's cool. Let's drop a hit of acid and go see them, or you know, uh, kind of walk around the like a flaneur through the city. I, I don't do it so much that way. I do it more kind of for myself uh, and, and you know, uh, in really comfortable situations. But yeah, tripping is you know is is depleting and uh, you know uh, it, it, definitely enriching. But it, it's it's an ordeal to put your yourself through. So. It's something you know. You you pra- I practice as I get older with, not caution, but with a certain degree of comfort at least. So as the years went on past that, have you seen it's still continuing in the art world today? Yeah, personally? I mean, it's I. Is it reflected in their work so much, or just I, in I, their yeah, life? Yeah, absolutely. I was you know h- hanging with a a graffiti artist. Uh, it's kind of like pretty tough background, like kind of you know not. Like a graffiti artist, not, not a street like, artist, not a street artist, and you know, and not uh, with a lot of uh, issues from his background. 
And he got into ayahuasca and now is making all these DMT paintings. And the work's really still graffiti but inherently trippy. So, yeah, I still find that. I never – you know, I'm not really a big fan of uh, of the mainstream of cultural movements that kind of – you know, because then you just – everyone just attaches themselves to it. So things like um, an, an art of intoxication is – it's – easier for me to follow and, and to kind of get a map of because not everyone's doing it. I'm not saying every artist is out there getting high and, and or uh, that their work is reflecting that experience. But it has always been there in our culture and it's a, a really fruitful one. So you don't think that artists are getting high? And I think artists are getting high, yeah. As a rule, like, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I think they still do. I mean, I think there's sure. been a lot of, uh, you know... the. The artist lifestyle has been kind of overrated uh, in our bohemian uh, romantic notions of it. And most of the really great artists I know work insanely hard and have incredibly disciplined practice. So if you're getting fucked up, <laughs> that's definitely going to um, cre- create uh, – it's just going to diminish your work. I found also there was a lot of artists I knew who got high and their work was really – really benefit from it. I mean, even bad drugs. I mean, junkies and cokeheads and, you know, what I'm interested in all forms of intoxication, the art. And what I found with most of them is that even those who practice some form of self-abnegation as part of it, most of it was still in the service of their work. Artists are incredibly determined people when it comes to their craft. And that they did it and did it and did it, and then it stopped working so well in terms of helping them, and then it hindered it and then they stopped and now they're in the rooms <laughs> but whatever it's uh that's that's fine too it doesn't have to be a lifelong thing and you know if someone tells me like no it's fine i tripped a bunch when i was a kid i never need to again i'm like cool you know you learned something from it and i think it's always good to remind yourself of that stuff but uh a lot of us at least gets imprinted in our dna because it is life-changing and i know now you're spending a lot of time traveling and other yeah. parts of the world. I mean, until coronavirus kicked in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but you've seen and met people elsewhere yeah. now. So do you find that's something that's true anywhere you go, or is I, it specific you know, to certain countries? I uh, in December I smoked dope on four continents. So achievement, uh, you know. <laughs> when you put it in your highlight reel, I mean, it helps to know artists, you know, <laughs> where you go. But so yeah, where are those? Like, where was it? Asia, Europe. Yeah, Asia, Europe, Australia, and America. So people are happy to share with you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a kind of, it's a it's a global thing. It, yeah, it's a global thing, and and sharing is part of it. And we will see now with like something like uh, coronavirus or, or whatever the next epidemic is, if we continue this kind of, you know, back to the passing the peace pipe, which was wacky tobacco. They didn't give us tobacco. They gave us something far better. Like, you know, passing a joint, if that still stays as part of uh, our lifestyle. Because to me, that's always been nice. And I always thought that, like, the same way sitting down for a, Beer with a friend was a substantively different situation than drinking shots, you know, uh, or a glass of wine. I'd say because I'm not even a beer drinker, but you know, this as not doing bong hits versus smoking uh, smoking a joint. That there's something in that interchange that is, you know, the dynamic thing. Every drug creates its rituals. Like watch a junkie like setting up his works to shoot up, or 
some coke fiend chopping lines on a mirror for two hours <laughs> while you're waiting for a toot. Or somebody making their coffee in the morning. Yeah, like, people get pretty ritual. You, we, ritual is definitely part of, uh, you know, part of the way we we determine these things. And uh, I was just talking with an artist who uh, uh, basically found out he had some liver issues. So him and his wife were both pretty heavy drinkers. Uh, uh, i stopped drinking now. And... Um, uh, they were like, wow, you know, what's really weird is how much of our day was, because they didn't drink all day, how much of the day was still somewhere in your, the bandwidth of your mind was occupied with like, well, when do I deserve that drink? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and things like that. Sure. And the way like we might be like going, is it 420 yet if we don't want to be a wake and bake person? That these kind of things are, uh, they tend to occupy more mind space than they should. Or as Lou Reed said, waiting for my man, because a lot of people waste a lot of hours that way. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, just the mainstreaming of cannabis culture, which is happening, and even with regard to ayahuasca, which you yeah. uh, referred to earlier, you know, more and more people are uh, thinking or doing it or have done it. Uh, do you feel like that's changing the experience or the fact that it's no longer as underground? Yeah, I mean, well, look, there was a, an argument within the culture back to Leary when he tried to popularize it and tell everyone to tune in and drop out and whatever, that these things have an esoteric tradition that is probably not for everyone. You know, it's great. I'm really happy that, uh, and it does help that I'm old and white, but that I can walk down the street and smoke a joint and no one fucks with me. That's really nice. That people who aren't like me are not, get, you know, that, that we can arrest the kind of... Uh, huge tide of incarceration that went with that. I mean, there are, there are some really beneficial things. Now, what's happened with psychedelics, like something like ayahuasca versus what's happened with cannabis are entirely different in terms of how they're entering into the culture. Uh, I would say that that psychedelics kind of enter in with this, you know, really creepy self-help guru kind of world that, as I said, spiritual seekers, people like I'm flying my shaman in from Peru and like then, you know, it's like and inviting these people over and we're going to have this experience and, you know, and it's like, oh, please. It's like, uh, I like tripping alone. I really don't want a guide. Uh, and, and you people are, are pathetic uh, for needing one. Sorry. <laughs> and these are my friends I'm talking about. But um, and then cannabis is entering into our culture more like as a capitalist tool, as a commodity, as a way in which people are thinking about how to monetize a changing situation, something which is being decriminalized or legalized and, and how can, you know, and, 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 and turned into something like that it, with a you know, reflection probably of the same, you know, energies that went into tobacco companies and how they just blew up and flourished out of, out of something which was not that big that way, or pharmaceuticals for that matter. But there was an underground economy already yeah. or there is and which is even bigger than the legal yes economy it's, it's still it's still way bigger and this is why we uh you know ultimately we hope for decriminalization instead of legalization because and make the, the difference uh it, because i when you decriminalize it you create all these regulations and all these rules and all these kind of financial burdens upon the grower, the distributor, the and all the people you're pulling in. And all of a sudden, like, I remember, like, hold on, like, you look like 
a hedge fund manager and you look like a Republican lawyer. And like they are. And we're supposed to be sitting at the table talking about about my culture. I have nothing in common with you. If you want to get high, that's fine. But you're not even getting high. You're just trying to get rich. So, you know, this is really, truly damaged us. So when you decriminalize it, you can allow this other economy to exist. People who actually know and understand the plant, people who know how to grow it, people who know the the different, you know, the different ways, the, the different highs, like, uh, you know, what a sativa can do, you know, all these different things like that. You know, keep it in their hands, uh, I, I say, by all means. Um, and then, you know, keep these other fools out of it because every time they do, the, the market bottoms out, people lose their farms. It's, you know, it's a mess. Speaking of Daniel Pinchbeck, mm-hmm. who's somebody you know, yeah. and he was on my show and he, we discussed some of this. And his his view was that there's people who've taken L- – I, I, have you taken ayahuasca? Yeah. Oh, you have? Okay. Yeah. So he feels that it's not enough that you have to take ayahuasca for today's world, that that's the sort of the psychedelic that's most uh, addressing the life we have today as opposed to LSD, which he thinks is just sort of like a 60s boomer thing. Right. Well, I mean, uh, I like and respect Daniel completely, but that's precisely the problem is that you have someone telling you what you have to do. And this is then this is what happens when somebody writes about a book on drugs and becomes a bestseller and you've had so much smoke blown up your ass, you actually think your opinions for what other people should do matter. No, no, that's fundamentally wrong. That's, you know, that that's why I've avoided all those trappings for as long as I have. Moving into back... I mean, maybe you've misquoted him that way. Maybe, I'm sure it's I, not I fair to say that. Him. I didn't quote him, but I did, that was his sentiment. Yeah. Clearly, because we had a little moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm not that. a big fan of telling everyone to do. I mean, personally, I think that it would be wonderful that... if the entire world got credit. You know, everyone got expect near overdose on uh, opiates, and then they all had to trip. I mean, because then we'd have like some weird. Only the next stage would make it through. But I would never recommend that, or never tell people to do that. It is a different thing. We can have our opinions about what might make this a healthier planet or a healthier individual, but uh, to offer them is ridiculous. I think he said his quote was something along the lines of that the people, the boomers, need to take buckets of ayahuasca. Well, you know, you, you need to take a half a bucket just to really get where you need to go anyway. Well, let's move on to music also, because that's part of the experience. Like yeah. you said, whether you're smoking, whether you're, you know, um, on drugs psychedelics, cocaine, whatever, people like to also change their status, uh, psychedelic status, with regard to wherever they're going. Now people are going like, you know, let's have some edibles and go to the movies because now you can't smoke, but you Mm -hmm. can have edibles and then, you know, wait for the effect and see how that works. And um, so with regard to music, though, do you feel like there's the same relationship between creativity and and the psychedelic or the cannabis experience of I mean, that's a, such a you... that's such a beautiful long lineage in the you know the the real germinal roots of blues and of uh, jazz and what what I like about it and and also just like if you ever read a really really important short story by Terry Southern from the early '60s so before you know the big popularization was Red Dirt Marijuana. And, you know, and just basically talking about it coming from that culture. And 
Uh, what I liked about it was uh, if you're dealing with a culture of hardship, in this case, you know, kind of uh, racial <laughs> uh, injustice, um, and and you got people being very serious with their craft. Uh, you, if you listen to the marijuana music, <laughs> you know, the, the famous, they're all kind of novelty songs. And it's oh, like, that whole, actually mention it. Yeah, yeah, exactly ones, the, the shout out ones, you know, the Cab Calloway kind of like, you know, it, and, and I do think that uh, there's a place for a sense of humor in all this and a place for play and laughter and fun. And these things sometimes are absent uh, in the arts and they're often absent in our world. And I, I do love it that way. That, uh, and, or like a, how some psychedelic bands had a, you know, such a, a wonderfully dissolved view of reality that, that could run anything from the kind of meanderings of the Grateful Dead, which you probably need to be high. Otherwise, it's like listening to the grass grow. But... Um, <laughs> uh, through the humor of the butthole surfers at their time, that kind of carnivalesque play that they brought out. There's there's so many ways in which drugs can play out. For me, like when the guitar I, solo, the guitar solo. Some people <laughs> some people like to rock out on that, though I th- find that generally a pretty pompous and right now obsolete uh, kind of vernacular. But uh, the um, yeah, it's 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 a, it's just a really uh, healthy kind of uh, thing within our music. What, what I found as a critic, though, was that uh, as much, you know, we never really tried to practice critical objectivity. Uh, we've always understood it's a very subjective thing, and and that other part that goes with our profession is a bit of emperor's new clothes, but that I had to be mindful, especially when I was writing about music. Sometimes I'd go to a concert, and it was really good, and it was because I was just really high. And I would have probably like enjoyed almost anything as a live music experience at that point. And other times, like the line to the bar was too long, you know, <laughs> the room was too crowded, and I needed a cigarette or whatever it was, and I didn't like it. You know, so you have to understand that like there is a chemistry in creativity and the chemistry in terms of uh, perception or appreciation. Sure, I mean, you wake up on the other wrong side of the bed and you sort of That's it. pissed off the rest of the day. You're not going to help you enjoy, but sometimes that can help you. Get out of it. Get out of it. It's absolutely really good. I mean, so if like, you know, I would say for coronavirus, like don't share your joints, but it's really good for low level anxiety. It just helps diminish that stuff. And, uh, you know, (laughs) we talked earlier about the 60s and the role of psychedelics in uh, the role of psychedelics in helping to propel the culture out of. The the morale, the hegemony, the yes. the, the normalcy, the yeah, it the really 60s. helped, and it's really it's really helped with self questioning. I mean, I I think that like uh, we're at a time now uh, that people are taking fake news, taking all sorts of different things, taking the voices uh, that are convenient to them in their heads, and accepting them, and people aren't questioning as much. And one of the great uh, aspects of what a psychedelic experiences is that it makes you question everything, including your own assumption, assumptions. And these, this is really, I think, you know, a healthy thing. For maybe not for everyone, for some people, their reality is like. But it pretty, might be the only bad. thing. I mean, you know, without that, would it be possible, you know, for us to today to get out of the hole that we're in structurally, uh, you know, in our culture and the world in general, that people perceive things to be a certain way, and we're kind of stuck in that world 
and how do we get out of it? You know, is there a way out of it? I think psychedelics could... Psychedelics are good at just about anything that can get us outside of our kind of uh, pharmaceutical industry addictions would probably be better. And that's one of the arguments that even being made in pro sports now, which have been, you know, historically pretty uh, anti-drug, uh, that all of a sudden, like, you know, for players like... a bit of pot will really help with the low level pain will really you know and it it won't disguise pain and you know will allow you to live with it these kind of things are way better than shooting them with you know whatever juice you want to give them to make them play better and that's kind of a little bit of a counter argument to this whole mainstreaming right but because because of the mainstreaming it's allowing more research and development yeah. around. I mean, everything got shut down for 50 years, basically. <laughs> you know? But now it's an open. So this wouldn't yeah, have it, happened unless it was an industry that you know saw the monetization of this. Yeah. So yeah. could you say, would you say that's a positive side of this? Oh, or? yeah, yeah. That would be uh, definitely. Um, though, I mean, I think knowing researchers not their bosses, not the people who are getting the grants and stuff like that, but knowing most researchers, they're, they're probably still more driven by notions of, of, of curing or healing or discovery or things like that, alternatives, uh, that they're still more directed by that than the fact that maybe the money behind it would be some other company looking at a way to like put it out on the market. I know you like to cook. Yes, I do. And you're a bit of a cook. So how about the whole foodie cannabis world where people are preparing these, you know, five-course dinners? I have uh, these guests, uh, Miguel Trinidad, who was a chef from Bong Appetit, mm. guest on my show recently. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that guy. And he really knows his shit when it comes to this, and he prepares these five-course meals. Was that sounds like something you would like to try? Yeah, or have I love, you, you know, I mean, I've, uh, I mean, even back... Uh, Back to the 80s with High Times, we had this guy, Chef Ra. Did you know about him? No, tell me. Yeah, Chef Ra was like uh, doing uh, basically uh, pot cooking, you know, (laughs) Uh, just different recipes, different experiences like that all the way back then. Now, I is more like, uh, you know, so I remember like kind of a homestyle, like Jamaican kind of food and stuff like that. Right. But uh, look, I mean... Foodies, they eat well, and I love to to break uh, bread with them. I, as I said, I I worry sometimes about seriousness, and I appreciate connoisseurship, but it can get really uptight. And we see that not just with the cooking; we see that with the way some people are just going about on about their stash as if it's like, uh, you know, they're writing for cigar aficionado. Yes, I mean, you can appreciate these things. I can appreciate a really nice, simple French table wine that's really affordable uh, and probably recognize the difference between that and like some many hundred dollar bottle of wine. But I generally probably rather sit at a a dinner table in Europe and drink their wine than I would with a lot of wine wine connoisseurs wine aficionados and you know with cannabis also there's a whole like siloing going on with this like sex and cannabis you know health and wellness and cannabis women and cannabis uh, you know gays and cannabis I mean I I think that's nature of our identity politics right now is that there's an over ascribing and everyone wants you know and so there's a lot of cross pollinations between things so it's like I like 
I like to get high, but I also believe in magic, and I also, you know, whatever, and then you just kind of create your own little kind of cultural explanation for it. But One of the, uh, you know, least uh, noticed or remarked upon changes in uh, this whole world that we're discussing here is the evolution of the head shop. Right. I'm reminded because I had Kenny Scharf on, mm. and I, we talked about art. Like, where Did you talk about the bong he made? No. Did you know he made a bong? He doesn't like to talk a about new it because no, no. Back in the day, oh maybe I don't because uh, the company that did it, I think, ripped him off. But uh, uh, so he doesn't talk about it as much. But yeah, he, you know, and I, <laughs> I went to a event recently for Keith Herring bongs, which of course are being made posthumously. But yeah, but 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 the the uh, head shop was what because when he was a kid, there were no museums where he was growing up yeah. in California. So I asked him, well, where was your exposure to art? And he says, well, I'd go to the head shops, and they would see the posters of yeah. Escher and Dali and things like that. Mm-hmm. There was sort of like the As well as the great art. 60s psychedelic posters I was mentioning. As the well. 60s Those psychedelics are, yeah. and yeah. even... And then probably, you know, even dragging it in, you get the tacky blacklight posters come in as well. Yeah. But not now. I mean, what if you go into these shops, they're just loaded up with these... Yeah, bongs and just yeah. The visual, the visual culture is kind of you know there is a beautiful kind of subculture of glass blowers out there making amazing pipes, uh, but that is closer. And I hate to, uh, you know, I don't mean to be condescending or overly prioritize things, but that thing's closer to craft than it is to the language of fine art. But um, yeah, uh, the that little opportunity that happened with the head shop, with the, the cool place that you could get your rolling papers or maybe a little pipe in all throughout America. It wasn't just New York and California. It was like a lot of towns had that. The bigger town would have that in your state. That A lot of things um, were born or at least carried through that. So underground comics uh, was a fundamental, like, you know, you could never have had Crumb doing Zap that weren't the head shops to sell them in. And so artists like Robert Williams, who I work with, you know, that's where he, that's where people know him first from that than they do from later. You know, he gets more known for like the Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction cover or things like that. But uh, free press, the underground press, the, just so much culture was disseminated in this way, the way that maybe a decade earlier in Europe it was the kind of the coffee shops, the cappuccino bars, the things like that, which people discovered, you know, you could kind of keep later hours and young people could hang there and, and do what they want and sort of like it, uh, it could go from bongos to poetry to uh, dancing to the beginning of like what a discotheque might be with, with music and people dancing. So... Uh, these these nodes of of, uh, of connectivity are really nodes of, of opportunity. Uh, the, that whole cultures can spring up through that. What we're finding now with the head shops now, at least in New York, I, I really can't speak that well what it would be like in, in other parts of the country. But in New York, what what happened was you had an industry, a pretty marginal, you know, industry where they made their money off of like selling newspapers and cigarettes. And no one's buying newspapers and, and cigarettes or no one's really buying either. So they all like this is a, a, a kind of a venue for them. They all, And the next thing you know, it's like where I will go to get my cigarettes now. It's like these are people who never smoke pot. And they, their stores filled with all sorts of all sorts of paraphernalia that way because 
that's how, you know, that's how they're going to make up for all the other sales that they're lacking in, in, in the newspapers and magazines and cigarettes and things like that. And then one final thing is the kind of, what are we losing in, uh, in terms of the shops, the, the, um, you know, that are selling the weed where it's legal as opposed to sort of the old style, having your local dealer, friend, associate, um, salon, where you would see your friends and have this whole kind of communal experience that seems to be passing as well. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's just becoming treated more like a weird luxury item, right? I mean, uh, the first, you know, dispensaries I went to were in San Francisco because growers would bring me there and I'd be like, oh, cool. And I'd be like, holy shit, like everyone here is dying. This is like going to a hospital for kicks. This is a really sad thing. And then it kind of boutiques out. And so if I go to California or Colorado or places like that, it's like a salon experience. Like, can you do my nails while I, you know, <laughs> while I <laughs> choose my cool. weed? <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, that, but that's probably more symptomatic of the way our culture is going anyway, uh, you know, because we've turned into like this service uh, economy. So everything's all services are, are just trying to posh up in some way or another to attract consumers and charge $10 more. So if you had your way to be living, in, you know, obviously alive today, but how it was then or how it is now, where well, would you pick? I, I try to stay away from nostalgias. I mean, I, I, then is always better because you're 20 years old then and, and, <laughs> and now you're yes. not. So, I mean... At the same age. But, right, I'll uh, take that off the table. Yeah, so... Uh, if you're at the same age then or now. I, you know, I I like the... Um, I, I've always liked word of mouth. It's one of the reasons I've resisted the internet because I think that things flow more interesting as a conversation than, than as a, a blog or something like that. Most of the art and music I discovered, I discovered through direct experience and through conversations, people, you know, talking to people. I still think like a good dope dealer is like a good bartender, like, a, you know, maybe a good hairdresser also. It's just somebody, you know, can kind of fill you in on the local gossip and tell you what so-and-so said about this subject or whatever and like, oh, look, you know... Sometimes it's about books, sometimes whatever it is. I actually... Music. I, I, yeah, music. I mean, I, I find these kind of interchanges. TV shows. <laughs> yeah, I, I got kind of glaze over when people talk about TV shows. Maybe they are. Well, thank you very much, Carlo McCormick, and uh, coming out on this day of all, all days. Right. There we go. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care, man. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash Light Culture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. <laughs> <laughs>